Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends. Happy holidays. Hope you guys are having a good Christmas with your families, with your husband, with your wife, with your kids, with your mom and dad, with your dog, with whatever it is that you're having Christmas with. Uh, I don't know why I started using that uh, accent a second ago, but I did. My bad. Um, what we're doing uh, today for the podcast is I'm actually playing a, a sermon that old Richard Beck and I did at uh, the church I'm a part of here in Austin, and um, I think you guys will enjoy this. It, uh, it, like I said, was a sermon. So we've uh, we've done plenty of podcasts together, and I was slightly terrified about the sermon because I didn't know how much riffing we would do. Because usually we just kind of go wherever, and we actually had to have like slides and you know, order and organization, and uh, this is what happens when Richard and I actually plan a talk together. So, um, here it is. Thanks. Enjoy. Goodbye. Merry Christmas. So now, I get to invite my friend Richard Beck to join me on the stage. Can we give him a warm Westover welcome? So we're going to team preach today. So if you thought you're just going to hear one preacher, you're going to be disappointed because you get two, which means we'll be out here roughly about 2.30. That's twice uh, as long. Twice as long, half as good. That's what we're promising. Uh, now, let me give you a little background. Richard is a good friend of mine. He is the chair of the psychology department at Abilene Christian University. Go Wildcats. He is a Bible class teacher at the Highland Church of Christ in Abilene, and he also has been teaching a Bible class at the French Roberts Maximum, maximum what's the word? Maximum security. Max, you just say, it's a prison where it's, it's a, like very <laughs> difficult to get out. That's all I'm yeah, saying. Yeah, yeah. If you're going to try to break out of prison, it's not that one. Exactly. <laughs> Clearly, I went to school for a long time. Um, <laughs> And, but the, the most important thing about Richard is that he is a psychologist, but his very first psychology class was taught by yours truly, the father. So my dad was his very first psychology teacher. That's correct. He was my very first psych. And you guys still work together. And we still work. He's a colleague of mine at ACU. So um, That's very exciting. We've known each other for a long time. You were, we were a lot younger when we first met. You, you and my dad or you and me? No, yeah. You were younger too. I, I mean... Think. Yeah. That's just true altogether. Yeah. Like, that's typically how time works. Um, <laughs> no, this is going to be bad. Uh, getting loose here. Yeah. Uh, Richard, uh, so he is a psychologist, but a lot of his work over the last, I don't know, decade or so mm-hmm. has been integrating theology and psychology. So he's written four books, and they all, uh, with very different angles, are integrating the two different uh, disciplines of psychology and theology, which is where a lot of our mutual interests come from. And uh, so side note, Richard will be embarrassed that I tell you this, but one of the most uh, prominent Old Testament scholars alive today is a gentleman named Walter Brueggemann. And in Brueggemann's most recent book, he actually references old Richard Beck over here. And so I just say that as often as I can to embarrass him. Yeah, you've embarrassed me many times. So (laughs) why I said yes today, I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) But we uh, thank you for being here, though. Hey, it's good to be here. It's been a great welcome. Um, the first service, Bible classes, has been great. You guys, beautiful people here. Yeah. 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 Well, let's, uh, let's pray, and then we'll jump in, right in. In spite of your perfect, your, 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 I might say, so. Hmm. That's a good lead into prayer. <laughs> thank you for that glowing endorsement. I'm <laughs> glad I invited you. Yes. 
With friends like this, <laughs> you don't need enemies. Okay, let's pray. Uh, God, I thank you for my friend Richard. Uh, I thank you for um, the opportunity that we have uh, to share and to discuss, uh, hopefully, uh, words that bring people closer to you. And God, I pray that uh, as we gather this morning with uh, varying emotions, uh, some are coming uh, in the depths of sorrow, uh, some are coming in the midst of shame, some are coming uh, with great anxiety, some are uh, showing up today uh, with, with great celebration in our hearts. Uh, whatever state that we, we have walked into this place with, I pray that you would shape us and form us into being people who are grateful. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Is anybody anxious today? Yes, I am. You're, you're, <laughs> we're both very anxious. But I, I tell you what, I mean, people back in Abilene, it, my church, anxious. The, the election season has taken a toll on my church. Uh, people are anxious now with the transition coming up. It's, it just seems like the country is really very, very anxious. And if it's not that, maybe you're not anxious about um, the state of the country. Maybe you're anxious about, like, uh, I just got an email about my son's first semester grades, and so I'm anxious about some things uh, that have nothing to do with politics. And some of you guys are worried about your kids. Um, some of you are worried about your marriages. Some of you are worried about your job security or how to pay bills. Um, we come in We come in to this space this morning with a lot of anxiety, a lot of worries, a lot of st- stress and kind of strain, and we're kind of holding on. Um, what's interesting to me as a psychologist is how the, how the scriptures describe our, our great spiritual struggle you know, to, to love, to be like Jesus. It's not really a struggle against hate. It's not really a struggle against depravity or wickedness. It's a struggle with anxiety and fear. Like That's the root of our, of our troubles. You know, we know that, right? First John, perfect love casts out what? You know, fear. Um, and as a psychologist, my attention has been captured by a text in Hebrews 2. Um, you might not have ever heard of this verse before, but I've spent a lot of time thinking about it over the last couple of years. So here's what this text says in Hebrews 2. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's us, Jesus himself likewise shared in these same things so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. Well, who is that one? That is the devil. And to do what? To free those, you and I, who what? Just ponder this description of our lives. You and I are enslaved all our lives to the fear of death. It's a weird text because we don't typically, probably, you probably don't wake up this morning thinking that your anxiety is about, about death. Um, some of us think about that. Some of us experience a lot of loss. Um, we have a lot of worries about that. But, but some of us, how do we apply this text to us? When psychologists think about this fear of death, you know what they think about? They think about whenever we're feeling... We're running up against our biological and our psychological limits. You probably feel that, do you not? Does anybody feel stretched really thin? Feel like your finances are stretched really thin? You feel like you're kind of running out, getting exhausted or depleted? We call that a feeling of scarcity, that there is just not enough, and we're going to run out. Probably the great expositor of scarcity today is the author Brene Brown. Any Brene Brown fans out there? Uh, This is a quote from Brene Brown describing what this fear, this anxiety looks like in our life. She says, we get scarcity because we live it. Scarcity is the 
I'm never enough, the never enough problem. And scarcity thrives in a culture where everyone is hyper aware of lack, that there's not enough. Everything from safety to love to money, resources feels restricted and lacking. And so we spend an inordinate amount of time calculating how much we have, how much we want, what we don't have, how much everybody else has and wants and needs. A culture where everybody is hyper aware of not enough. And it's not just not enough money. Maybe it's not enough time. Maybe it's not enough energy to get done what we need to get done. So some of it is just the physical sense of exhaustion from resources to time to energy. But some of this not enough is more about our self-esteem. That you and I are not enough. We're not thin enough or pretty enough or successful enough or talented enough or promoted enough. We ourselves feel like as people we are not enough. And Brene Brown calls this the shame-based fear of being ordinary. And so we wonder, how do we get rid of this? If we have this sense that we aren't enough, what do we do with that? Because we don't want to hold that inside of us. We don't want to live out of that. Well, a while back, I get a message from a friend. And the friend says, have you heard of this new book on prayer? I said, no, I haven't heard about this one. And she, well, it's the, it's the latest and greatest book on prayer that, that teaches, teaches us what we need to do to get our prayers answered. And there's something that like goes off in my head. It's like my spider sense that says this isn't right because the latest and greatest technique on prayer, it's kind of troubling because people have been doing prayer for like thousands of years. Like this is not a new thing. But she goes on and explains how this book tells her that what we need to do and what's causing us not to get our prayers answered is that we're not praying bold enough. And so if we add boldness to our prayers and then we couple it with acts of piety like fasting, then we're definitely going to get our prayers answered. And I'm hearing this person tell me of her experience, and I know what she's praying for. And it's not to be rich and famous. It's not to be on the cover of a magazine. It's a very noble prayer that she wants answered. And I'm wondering, is, is this prayer, no matter how healthy her prayer is, is this idea of prayer just offering her something that is ultimately going to disappoint her? Because many in this room have prayed prayers out of our sense that we need more. And it's not that we want to have excess, it's that we just want to have enough. And sometimes when we think of prayer... Ultimately, it's getting us just to stay on this exact same game that we've been playing without God. And now God just becomes the means to get us there faster. It's like when you go to an amusement park. I don't know if you've done this recently, but you, you buy your ticket to get into the amusement park, which is not a small amount. And then they say, if you don't want to wait in line, you know what you need to do. Spend more money and buy the fast pass. You know what I'm talking about? It's like, you've already spent a ton of money, now spend more money. And like in the back of my head, the old saying about first class is bouncing through my head like, 
Do you know what time first class lands? The exact same time as coach, right? It's the same amusement park, right? But if you pay more, then you'll get to the front of the line faster. Same park, same ride, same experience. You just get there a little bit quicker. And sometimes I think the way that we understand prayer is that prayer is just this fast pass to get us to the front of the line so we get what we feel like will make us feel like we have enough. And so prayer perpetuates the same game that what you have currently right now isn't enough and God just becomes the vehicle to get you there. And during the series that we've been talking about over the last few weeks, obviously it's been uh, broken up with a few different interruptions, but the basic point of the series is that it's not that God shows up at certain times in our life, it's that God has already shown up. And the question isn't, will God show up? But the question is, will we be aware of it? And so God is always with us. And so what if the idea of God's presence in our life isn't just to fast pass us, to get us to what we feel like we need to be enough? What if it's something beyond that? And it doesn't mean playing that same old game that I'm not enough right now. So we live our lives enslaved to anxiety and to a feeling of not enough and scarcity. So how do you go from living out of scarcity and lack and the, and the gap between what I, what I have and who I am and what I want and what I want to be? How, instead of living out of that deficit, how do you move into a location of abundance? Um, well, psychologists have actually studied things like happiness, like what, what separates the people that are most anxious and depressed and versus like the top 1% of the happiest people in the world. Wouldn't you like to know the secret of happiness, according to a psychologist today? Like what, what, what is the characteristic of the top 1% of the happiest people in the world? Like what magic do they have that they, we don't have? They're, they're part of Westover. They're part of Westover. <laughs> uh, and, and the answer is this, uh, Gratitude. The thing that marks the happiest people in the world is thankfulness and gratitude. Not a bad week to be thinking about this. Why, and, but why is that? Because it's with gratitude for something, something becomes a location of frustration or envy or jealousy or dissatisfaction. And if you, but if you feel grateful for it, that becomes a gift. That becomes grace. It's a blessing. And most of us go through life like this. Because things are lacking and things are scarce, we grab onto things and we hold onto them with this kind of white-knuckled fear that if I let anything go, it's all going to slip away. So you've got to fight for and hold on to every last scrap. And a lot of us, this is the way we came into church today. But it's with gratitude that the entire posture of your life Transform, transforms from this to more like this. And we receive all things as gift, and even yourself as a location of grace and blessing. Now, for Christians, it's not just a psychological thing, just be grateful. But we always tie that gratitude to prayer, and we, and we tie it to worship. One of my favorite phrases from David Kelsey is, what we practice in worship and in prayer is doxological gratitude. Doxologist means worship. 
in prayer, in worship, when we fall on our knees and we open up our hands to God to receive all things as gift, we, we transition from scarcity to abundance. And our anxiety lessens. I learned this out of the prison, actually. On Monday nights, I go out and teach this Bible study for 50 inmates at a maximum security prison. And obviously, that's a place of great scarcity and fear. They are, they are, they are, are worried about their safety. They come in with black eyes. They are physically afraid. But it's not just their physical fears. It's their emotional fears. They are discarded. These, this is a maximum security prison. They will be in there for decades. And the only visitors they will receive is me, a chaplain volunteer. They have no family, no friends. They, they feel like they're trash, disposable people in the world. And so they, are, they, they feel a scarcity in their gut that they themselves are nobody or nothing. And it's hard to minister out there. But you know my great discovery was to minister to the scarcity and the, and the fear out there. One, one evening I was looking at this wall of hymnals along the wall of the chapel. Just hymnals. And I said, do y'all ever use these? And they said, no, we didn't grow up in the church. We don't know any of the songs in those hymn books. And I said, I was raised in the churches of Christ. I know every song <laughs> in those hymnals. And so as, as God would have it, so we, get out, we started getting out those song books. And every Monday night in a maximum security prison, I lead an old-fashioned hymn sing. And they come in, and we start, and I can tell that there's a lot of fear in the air, a lot of anxiety in the air, and we'll start, and they will start calling out hymns like I used to do as a young boy in the pew. And we will sing, I'll fly away in amazing grace, and is there a balm in Gilead? And as the singing goes, the fear and the anxiety washes away, and they begin operating out of a sense of joy It's just like Paul and Silas in prison, is it not? They're deep in that prison and they are afraid. And they begin to sing. Because it's in the singing and the praise and the worship that we exercise the power of the devil, fear. And what happens in worship is not that the context that you're in, it's not that your circumstance really changes. But something changes in here. Now, I used this illustration like a year ago, but um, I don't have a better one, so I'm just going to do it again. So just go with me on this one. Uh, Before we uh, came back to Texas, uh, my wife and I lived in Florida. So we went to ACU, graduated, first job was in Panama City, Florida. It's right on the beach. And so while we were there, we had some uh, very dear friends who've been married five or six decades, a long time. And so they lived in the same house for years right there uh, on the water. And so every night they have this ritual, which many of us can relate to. We have the same ritual we do every night. And so every night he comes home, he still works, and he comes home from his dental practice, and they have dinner and they eat it at the table in the kitchen. And so every night they sit down, they have their same seats, which, like, that's the right thing to do. You have the same seat. You don't change because that's just unhealthy, right? As a yeah. psychologist, that's unhealthy. Yeah, I might share. And... They sit down and they have the news on, on this like 20 inch TV on the wall that's right next to the laundry room. And so every night the news is on, the TV right there, and then the washer and dryer are right in the background. Well, their son picks up 
that something's wrong with this. And he says, why don't we just move the TV from this side of the room and put it on the other side of the room? Because your back has been to the window that your living room looks out on. And so every night your back is to this view. This is a picture he took of their uh, kitchen once he turned the TV around. So there's the news. And this is where the laundry room, room is. And that's the view out their window. Let's go to the next side. You can see a little bit better. That's their backyard. Uh, my friend went and took this just on an average Tuesday evening with his iPhone 4, which is like one step above a caveman etching it from the side <laughs> of the wall. And it's still that beautiful. And it looks just like Abilene, right? Yeah, it's like, I'm back home That's a shot right there. And, <laughs> and the view's been there the whole time. But they haven't seen it. And a lot of ways what worship and prayer and communion with God does is it doesn't so much change your context as much as it changes your disposition. Prayer, in a lot of ways, and, and worship is like turning the chair around so you can see what's always been there. Now, Christianity has encouraged people to pray because somehow it changes things. There's story after story throughout the Christian tradition of prayer making a difference in your context. But for many... We pray prayers and the context don't change. And that sense that I, I don't have enough, and so if I got that, then things would be better, that, that doesn't change. Jesus, before he goes to the cross, prays a prayer, God, take this cup from me. He said, God, I don't want to go to the cross. Is there any way that I don't have to go to the cross? And Jesus' last prayer is answered with a no. Jesus will eventually say, not my will, but thy will be done. And he submits himself to God. But still, his request is answered with a no. There is no change in his context. The Apostle Paul talks about this thorn that he had in his side. And he prays repeatedly, God, get this thorn out of my side. And this is a prayer that I think many of us can relate to. God, get this addiction out of my side. God, get this crippling sense of guilt and shame out of my side. Get this struggle that my child has away. And you pray over and over and over again. And what is the answer you receive? No, the context and the circumstances don't change. But this is what Paul heard. Uh, This is from 2 Corinthians 12. God says to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. So I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. What we find in worship, in connection to God, is a message that says, you might not feel like enough, but my grace makes you enough, no matter the context no matter the circumstance. The person that taught me about this more than even the men out at the prison was Miss Beth. And Miss Beth passed away about a year ago um, today. Uh, Miss Beth, I worship on Wednesday nights at a little church plant called Freedom Fellowship where we reach out to people who are very poor, people who are homeless, people who are, coming, people who are on parole, people dealing with addictions. 
And Miss Beth um, was a leader there for us. Miss Beth had lived a very hard life. Um, she had a very troubled history with men, lots of abuse that she had experienced. Um, she was intermittently homeless at various points in her life. Um, she eventually developed addiction and battled an addiction for years and years. And she was nobody anybody would pay attention to. She was at the absolute bottom of any sort of social pecking order that we would have. But Miss Beth found Jesus, and she started coming to Freedom Fellowship. And there she, she eventually worked her way up and became the leader of our kitchen. So when I showed up at Freedom, Miss Beth was my boss. She's the one that told me how to mop the floors and how to you know, put the chairs up. But her biggest impact at Freedom wasn't necessarily in the kitchen. It was in the worship sanctuary. Freedom is a little kind of charismatic, a little much more charismatic than my upbringing. So they, they move around a little bit. And Miss Beth would go out into the sanctuary after we cleaned up the dinner. And she'd go off into the corner as we would worship. And she had this kind of her own movement that she would do. A little kind of sway or dance that she would open her hands up. And she would just kind of sway back and forth. And it was one of the most beautiful things I'd ever seen. She had the most passionate, I would even say the most romantic relationship with Jesus I've ever seen. And when I was coming to freedom, I was, you know, my resume was probably way more impressive than Miss Beth. But I was just anxious and I was in, in, a, in a dark place. And here was this woman in the eyes of the world that, who... In human standards, doesn't have anything. And I seem to have it all. And she was transfixed with grace. And I would look at her and I would go, I don't know what that woman has, but like I need it. A dose of it. And this is what she had. Well, one, uh, one Valentine's Day, my wife had the Freedom Ladies over to her house for a Valentine's Day party. And, and a lot of the women at Freedom, again, have had very troubled histories with men. And so Valentine's Day is a kind of a really sad day. It is a day to reflect on how you don't have enough. You don't have enough love. You don't have a husband. You have a troubled history. It was a, it's, a, it's a day where you can operate out of a sense of lack about what you don't have as far as human affection is concerned. But so Janet gathered those women together, and they had their own Valentine's Day party. And so Janet went to the party store, and she bought these uh, princess tiaras, these party hats, and all these ladies, they put on those tiaras and dressed up like princesses that day because in the eyes of the world, they were not enough. In the eyes of some man, they were not enough. But in the eyes of Jesus, they were beautiful. In the eyes of God, they were gorgeous and loved. They were enough. And on hard weeks, because Miss Beth's life wasn't all that easy when she was having a tough week when she would come to work in the kitchen she would have that tiara on and she would dance in the corner with that tiara on she was nobody in the eyes of the world but to Jesus she was beautiful and she was enough Miss Beth taught me what it meant to open my hands to the grace of God and say, I don't bring a thing, but receive it all as gift and abundance. 
that in the eyes of Jesus, we have and we are enough. What we're going to do now uh, to practice our identity in Christ and our identity as sons and daughters of the King is we're going to do an ad- uh, a practice of gratitude. A-, a month ago, we handed out cards and we asked you to fill out in what way you're suffering. And we called this our prayers of the people. And what we're going to do this morning is another prayer of the people activity, but we're not going to ask you to write on the cards, which you'll find in the pew back in front of you. But we're going to ask you to to write in what area you're grateful for. In some, it's a very straightforward gratitude practice. My life is good. Uh, I've got a a loving family. Uh, I've got a job I value. Everyone in my family is is healthy. And if that's you, don't feel shame that you need to feel worse. Celebrate that this is that phase and season in life that you're in. And it'll be easy. You can write effusively about all the things you're grateful for. And maybe that's what you need to write. But for some of us, it's going to be a little bit more difficult. We're more like Miss Beth. Where you can't write this long list of things that are great in terms of the world's eyes of success or the world's perspective on what you should be grateful for. But instead, you need to lean hard into your identity as a daughter of the king. You need to lean hard into your identity as a son of God. And so maybe what it looks like for you is you're going through the depths of suffering or shame or hurt And it's hard for you to keep on going, but there's something that helps you take one more step. There's something that helps you not give up. And maybe you write down what that is, because that might be the thing that reminds you that for one more step, God is enough. Maybe you're frustrated about your situation in life. You don't have what you really want. But you lean into that thing that reminds you that this isn't the end of your story. And whatever it is that reminds you it's not the end of the story, maybe you write that down and be grateful for that. Because ultimately, gratitude isn't just something that we remember on Thanksgiving Day. It's not just about turkey and football. Um, Gratitude is a way of life. It's a way of life that's lived out of our understanding of who God is and who we are because of that. And so what I'm going to invite you to do is to grab one of those cards from the pew back in front of you. If you don't find one, there's going to be some at the tables in the back. And I'm going to invite you to fill one of these cards out. And then after we participate in communion and sing some songs of declaration, uh, one of our elders, Greg Watts, is going to get up and, and read an overview of the ways that this church, your sisters and brothers in Christ, are expressing gratitude. Because sometimes gratitude is something that has to be contagious. That we have to see it in the eyes and on the lips of our brothers and sisters to remind us the kind of people God is calling us to be. So I invite you to do that while we continue to worship. Let's pray. God, we are grateful that we no longer have to be slaves 
to the fear of death, to Satan, to emptiness, to failure, to defeat, to loss, to shame. But in you, we have been set free. And may what you say about us be more true to us than anything else. And may our identity in you create in us a spirit of gratitude. So it doesn't matter the context or the circumstances that we are in. That we have something to say thank you for. We have something to praise you for. Because no matter what we are in, we are not alone in it. And so we thank you for being a God who is always with us. We pray this in your name. Amen.